from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, and we're here this week at the Fairmont Hotel in San Jose, California, site of Verge 2015. On today's edition, we'll talk about Robin Chase, the Zipcar founder, and Twitter co-founder Ev Williams on platforms for sustainability, Tom Steyer and Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff on where social justice meets climate change, and how do you power a conference on walnut shells? It may sound nuts, but it's true. This week on 350. It's Friday, October 30th, 2015. I'm here with Associate Editor Lauren Hepler, and all I can say, Lauren, is wow, what a week. I know, right? Good times, though. Very interesting stuff. Lots to talk about today. So we've been here in San Jose since Monday or Sunday, actually, and uh, we've had started off with a pre-day of a number of different uh, uh, tutorials and something called City Summit, which we can talk a little bit about in a minute, and then three days of, uh, of just nonstop uh, sessions and uh, cocktails and more networking and more sessions. And um, I have to say that, uh, you know, what's so gratifying uh, about Verge is the audience uh, and how much they're appreciative of the ability to come together to talk about the convergence of technologies and how that affects their world and how that affects the world in terms of accelerating solutions for climate change and, and food and water and housing and everything else. Uh, but this was your first time. What did you think? It was. It was really cool because on the editorial side, we hear a lot about these big ideas, big audacious ideas to use a microgrid to power an entire island or something like that. But it was really cool here to meet the people who are actually working on making this stuff happen day to day. Like I met a guy from Santa Rosa up in the northern part of the Bay Area out here in California, and he just got $5 million to build a microgrid with Tesla. He heads up the public water utility. That's just one example, but really cool, as as the name implies, convergence of lots of different stuff. Yeah, and as we'll be talking about a little later, uh, the microgrid, we build a microgrid uh, powered by renewable energy in one day to power this conference. So everything that, uh, that turns on or is plugged in uh, at the event and the, and the exhibit space and everything else is powered off. This microgrid's are down in the plaza uh, just below us uh, and uh, right on, in the middle of downtown San Jose, there's uh, some solar panels, there's a, um, a biodigester, which is the, the walnut shells, which uh, is power, uh, powering a, a chunk of the conference. There's also uh, some storage, uh, this really cool truck from our local utility, PG&E, that there's a mobile storage facility that can uh, has enough power, they say, to power 100 homes um, uh, for at least a while. In fact, one of the things we will do is put up on the uh, the web page for this conference is the the two minute video that our, our uh, creative director Danny Kelly did uh, in uh, well the, the making of the microgrid that he yeah he you really have to see it yeah. it's cool to see it we can talk about it and we will we'll we'll talk about it more but um, it, it's really cool to see actually in images. So let's get into it. It'll start as we always do with the Week in Review. So Green Business Week in Review, I mean, it's, you know, it's going to be verge, 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 I guess, unless there's some other things we want to talk about. What's up? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the priorities going into Verge this year, we knew, was to really break some news at the event, Um, and there was some good variety. I think 
one of the interesting things for me was Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff making an announcement with Gen Z, which is a company that does multimodal transportation in cities. So they do electric bikes and these really trippy looking scooters um, that were really fun to ride around the event, by the way. Um, But so what Libby announced at the event was that Oakland is actually going to be the first city in the world, she said, we haven't found anything that says otherwise, that to have um, electric bikes that are charged through solar. Um, So pretty interesting concept. And where are they going to be? Are these city vehicles or for the public? They're going to be down in a business improvement district. So the city is being smart, trying to align it with an area. It's Jack London Square in Oakland, which is a nice waterfront area on the bay. Um, And actually, naturally, they're having it outside of Sungevity, big solar provider in Oakland. So nice local tie-ins there since we're also an Oakland company. Yep. And we had a great conversation. We were very proud to have our mayor, Mayor Schaff, uh, on stage uh, with Michael Berkowitz, who is the uh, is, is the uh, founder of uh, 100 Resilient Cities, a Rockefeller Foundation-funded organization that's putting chief resilience officers in 100 cities around the world, and three of those cities are in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley, and Oakland, and so we got a chance to talk with Mayor Schaff about what resilience means uh, for the city of Oakland. What's exciting to me about the concept of resiliency is recognizing the interconnectivity of everything. That um, when we approach public safety, for example, that's a big issue in Oakland, that we have to approach it holistically. That I'm not going to have a safe city if there's huge income inequality. I'm not going to have a safe city if my kids aren't going to college and being prepared for jobs in the 21st century. And so to have that holistic approach, because government uh, can be pretty siloed, uh, but there's a lot of energy that just needs to be released. I love talking about it's time to free the entrepreneurial bureaucrat. They are out there. And resiliency kind of gives us a concept that lets us talk about why we need to break down the silos and why having, for example, social cohesion is the most important thing you can do to be prepared for an earthquake. It was interesting to hear her talk about sort of the intersection of not only climate risks like sea level rise, but how Oakland is dealing with the economic inequality issues that we've really seen boil over next door in San Francisco. Oakland's in this unique position of kind of seeing the wave coming, and it's how, how do you react? Yeah, we had that was a theme, and, and I, I heard some things. I um, hosted a lunch on the, the final day of the event uh, uh, around public-private partnerships, about 15, 20 people sitting around uh, and just having a, an hour-long conversation uh, pretty much off the cuff. And there was a lot of appreciation that we brought the social piece of this, and it wasn't all techno-optimism. As much as we you know, probably all are techno-optimists, but I think it, it's pretty evident that in a, in a world and certainly in a, in a nation where there's so much uh, income inequality and other forms of inequity in terms of access to healthy food, access to mobility, just transportation to get to jobs or shopping or health care or whatever, and, and, and other forms of that, uh, that, that we need to be making sure that the technology evolves and is, is, is scaled in a way that really does provide opportunity for all. And, and of course, the, there is a business case around that. This is not simply philanthropy. This is not simply doing the right thing. This is actually about how 
uh, cities become uh, more sustainable. And, and this goes directly to this whole idea of resilience, because a, a city where there is social cohesion, where we know our neighbors, where we, we all pitch in and, and do things together whenever times are tough, where we, we have access to health care and education and jobs, is a more resilient city in every sense of that word. Definitely. And that's going to be our second segment on the show today. We're going to talk about the human element of climate action. So stay tuned for that. Um, I also wanted to talk about clean energy. That was a huge theme, as you would expect. Uh, SunPower in particular was here in force, and they actually launched a product called Helix, which is basically solar in a box for a commercial customer. Um, Instead of going to get the different inverters and panels and all the different components you would need from various contractors or whatever, they're trying to make it easier lower the barrier to adoption for solar, basically, um, which is obviously good news for corporates who are looking to hit those clean energy goals. Yeah, and that's, of course, something that we've noticed and talked about a little bit on the show uh, over the past few weeks, that uh, there are more and more companies that are making 100% renewable commitments or otherwise just uh, large-scale commitments. We're going to see even more of those um, uh, as we get closer to COP21 in Paris in uh, another uh, five, uh, four or five weeks, actually. Um, but the other thing that was part of that is, is that we had uh, a pretty good presence from the state of Hawaii, uh, which is the first state in, in the United States to commit to 100% renewably, being renewably powered uh, by, in, this, in their case, 2045, so in the next 30 years. And we had Luis Oliveria, who's the head of their... Uh, uh, the State Office of uh, Business Development and Economic Development and Tourism, which is where the, the actually the energy office and it falls within his jurisdiction, and a number of others from Hawaii, and, and they were you know looking at these you know obviously very interested in the technologies that we were showcasing in the expo part of Verge, uh, and looking at you know not just how obviously solar has become cheaper and more ubiquitous and better able to scale, but how it works with all the others, because there's a lot of technologies that need to fit together, solar and wind and biogas and, and even geothermal technologies to create the, the, the distributed grid of the future and certainly the kinds of things that Hawaii is going to need. Yeah, definitely. Um, and another thing that was interesting, a, di- a different perspective to bring to the table was a corporate buyer. And it wasn't, you know, Facebook or Google or the ones you hear a lot about making these green energy commitments, but it was Bed Bath & Beyond. Really? Wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, it's It was an interesting case study because um, the executive we had was really talking more about, they did it for the economics. It wasn't really necessarily a super altruistic move. Obviously, I'm sure they like being able to talk about themselves in, in a positive sort of Clean Energy Association, but really for them it was about looking to like lock down their fixed long-term costs and and just get that energy supply taken care of. Yeah, and, and I mean they're they were they're different and not different, and they're different in that their name we don't often hear about as one of the as you were saying sort of the, the green showcase kinds of companies. But that's sort of how uh, how solar and renewables these are thought about these days inside companies, and that's why. We're seeing this this stepping up of uh, companies that are making 100% renewably powered commitments over the next five or 10 or 15 years. You know, it reduces risk. Uh, you know, we've it's sort of funny because we've talked about solar over the years is that it's it's it, it's uh, intermittent. Obviously, it doesn't generate when power when the sun's not shining or at night. 
Um, and so therefore, it's, I guess it's sort of risky because you never know exactly how much su sunlight you're going to get, even though by historical records, we, it's pretty predictable about where G a specific piece of land and how much energy it will receive. But instead of turning that on its head, solar in a world where energy prices uh, and energy even availability or the, the stability of the grid uh, are seen as in some ways uncertain, over, certainly over long periods of time, that solar becomes a much better and more reliable and less risky bet. And particularly now that we have storage coming online uh, and, and, and over the next year and certainly the next three to five years, the price performance of that is gonna just get better and better. All of a sudden, solar is kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, definitely. And I think sort of that same thinking holds true for the transportation sector. A lot of the themes you're talking about this week with electric vehicles and then thinking even further down the road, autonomous vehicles, which is where it starts to get really crazy. Yeah, we're going to hear from Stephen, uh, Stephen Heck uh, a little bit later. He's ex-McKinsey guy who just started a new company called Notto, and he, he talks about ACES, uh, is his acronym for uh, for autonomous connected electric uh, and shared vehicles. So you just think of a of a, a zip car, electric zip car, in effect uh, that drive with, without a driver. You know, <laughs> right, that's right. connected to the obviously without a driver is connected to uh, some systems that you know knows what's going on around it and, and how how to get where it wants to go. And you know that's still is pretty exotic, uh, but What's really interesting to hear, and uh, we'll hear from, from him in a bit, is how close that is. And you know, it, that increasingly we're, where we've gotten to is that it's no longer a technology problem. We know how to do that. It's entirely based on, on policy and insurance and social norms and other, and other kinds of things. So this is where you know technology meets society once again. Right. Well, that's a really interesting part. Uh, Stefan, who's out of Stanford University, actually was talking about the new company he just launched while he was at Verge. It's called Nauto, and they're jumping into an interesting space, which is sort of bridging the gap to self-driving cars. Um, they basically put a little device in your car that has advanced sensors to measure distance to parked cars and lane speeds if you're trying to switch into to the next space over. Um, and he basically is trying to retrofit cars to be more autonomous. So, so it's so an any, interesting model. So any car can be an, an autonomous car. We don't have to wait for the those to come off the assembly line. Is that the idea? That's the idea, but there's still limitations for sure. It uh, only works in certain scenarios. It's sort of like the new Tesla autopilot feature um, that's highway only. His isn't highway only, but um, it doesn't enable you to fully check out and, you know, go take a nap in the back of your car or anything. And he actually, uh, yeah, he took the time to explain it in a Verge talk. So here's what he had to say about the inefficiencies he was looking to combat and sort of how he's going after that market with Nauto. There is a third way. I call it the human way, because we can actually, instead of waiting for full autonomy to really be mature and ready, we can make the existing human drivers much, much better, much, much safer. We can give them augmented perception and vision. It's the same way that some of us wear glasses. You can actually have your car augment your senses. We can have each car learn from every other car, um, so that anything any car sees can actually show up for you in real time as a warning. That might be a collision that just happened in front of you. That might be road debris. That might be new traffic uh, information. We can also solve some of the biggest efficiency problems without necessarily throwing out all the vehicles we've got. Because if you actually solve congestion, 
parking and braking, you've solved most of the inefficiency of driving today. A third of all traffic is looking for parking in cities, and a huge proportion um, of traffic is actually, of emissions is caused by congestion. And lastly, how much easier would, you be, would sharing be if you knew who was driving your car while you loaned it out, how they were driving, and whether they had any accidents? So is that a 10-year-out vision? No. This is the product that we make. It's a small retrofit device, goes in your windshield with two cameras and essentially a tablet worth of computing that gives you those, uh, that augmented sensory awareness for your vehicle and is able to help you actually find open parking spaces that anybody else has seen, is able to help you um, track who's driving your car while you're not in it so that if you want to loan your car, maybe not just to your friend but actually to somebody you don't know, you can still see how they've been driving and whether, the, whether they cause any damage to the vehicle. So one of the big topics that rose to the fore this week at Verge was really around how to think about technology business models that truly enable some of these big picture sustainability solutions. Um, Gavin Starks, the CEO of the Open Data Institute, gave a really nice talk on day one of the main stage at Verge. And his whole point was that sort of talking about open data in a very broad, high level sense isn't enough. Um, it's really more about connecting the dots between data and people and then finding ways to make useful improvements. Yeah, and I think this speaks to the fact that technology for technology's sake is only of limited help. In fact, in some cases it may not be helpful at all. And in order to really implement it and take full advantage of, of all it offers, it, there's usually some kind of systems change, and that includes uh, people change you know, of how, you know, but in some cases there's some real, there's, there's very tangible issues like uh, liability for data getting out there and, and privacy of data and obviously cyber snooping and cyber terrorism of, you know, of what happens if that data gets into the wrong hands. Um, and, but it, it's clear that it's not simply about technology, it's not simply about data, it's not simply even about people, but it's how they all work together. And I think that's a lot about what, what Gavin was talking about. It was, and it was also about how these ideas transfer into very specific sectors. Uh, transportation has huge opportunities for data to make us move around more efficiently. Energy, obviously, reining in the really inefficient ways we power our buildings was a huge topic. But let's let Gavin do the talking. Here's what he had to say. When we think about the web of data, it's not just about collaboration. You can't access a nearly a billion websites because everybody decided to collaborate with each other individually on a case-by-case -case basis. It's because they decided to publish. And that trend really is at the heart of this. When we think about data as infrastructure, in the same way that we think about roads, roads help us navigate to a location. And data helps us navigate to a decision. And this question about data as infrastructure is one of our core research themes at the moment. Not only what is our data infrastructure, who owns the global geospatial information, who owns the land registries around the world, who owns, in fact, is there a global set of identifiers for companies? If we're in a digitally connected economy, how, do we, how are we actually going to wire together our physical worlds and our digital worlds? 
And part of the reflections here, if you have an asset and if you treat data as an asset, normally if you have physical assets, if they're not utilized, if they're not deployed, if they're not moving, you're losing value. And similarly with data, if your data is not connected, if it is not moving, then you are leaving value on the table. And this is very much a cultural shift. I don't meet many organizations who say, yes, we really want to open up our data. But that's changing. Governments around the world, uh, G8 signed an open data charter, G20 have followed suit. So at a political level, people are moving forward. But companies are now coming to us and saying, how can they be part of this data revolution? Speaking of data, one of the real pioneers in, in all of this is Robin Chase. She uh, founded or co-founded uh, Zipcar, uh, I guess a decade or so ago, and it was really about the power of data to create uh, what, what we now come to call the shared economy. Right, she's parlayed it into some really interesting work um, in the collaborative economy, as she calls it in her new book, Peers, which we did excerpt on greenbiz.com. Um, but for Robin, she really has keyed in on sort of how you organize data, and her whole thing now is thinking about platforms as a strategy for sustainability. So Zipcar would be an example of a platform bringing people and shared assets together to really, again, maximize that efficiency and hopefully um, uh, rein in some of the waste and transportation systems. Yeah, and one of the things that we're seeing more and more of, in fact, I think we'll be writing about this uh, on GreenViz in the coming months, is is how the collaborative economy, shared economy, is uh, is going B to B. Is that so far we've you know we we've gotten used to you know sharing cars and and excess things, baby clothes, and, and, and a number of other things. But now, business-to-business -business transactions, of, and those are, tend to be bigger assets. So there's now, there are now platforms for uh, available office space for uh, underutilized heavy machineries like, like tractors, both for industrial use and also in the agricultural community. There, there are sites for uh, being able to share uh, uh, equipment among cities, because cities, are, or even within a city, among different departments, uh, in the healthcare community, there's those big, you know, sometimes million-dollar pieces of equipment that that aren't utilized all that often, but can be shared, and and this is, uh, you know, really gets into some very big, uh, big assets and big dollars, and in some cases, I remember Paul Hawken told me uh, on stage last year at the Verge conference that he anticipated. Uh, and we have a, a, a GreenBiz Studio uh, uh, clip on this over at on GreenBiz, that the B2B sharing economy would eclipse the consumer-facing sharing economy. I definitely wouldn't doubt it. Here's what Robin had to say about all of this coming together. So the question is, why is it happening? And I look and think, why did we ever invent companies? Why did we invent governments? What was the point? We invented them to do things that we as individuals couldn't do. And so what are those things? It requires large investments. This can cost millions of dollars. Don't ask me, Robin Chase. I don't have millions of dollars. If it's going to require lots and lots of different kinds of intelligence, I'm really smart at two things. It takes 10. Forget it. If it's going to require something, that, you know, lots of standards and, and this real consistency, I can't tell you guys to wear short pants. You're not going to care what I say. I don't have the strength and the bigness behind me to make it happen. These are typically bound up together in a brand promise. I think of them as global. Individuals, what are they really good at? Localization, customization, and specialization. Big companies can do those things. They hate doing those things because they're a pain in the neck. 
These two things are, in fact, these two strengths are really, really complementary. Now that the internet exists, we have this new organizational structure that can deal with these very many small parts and we can get the best of both worlds and that's what I'm calling Peers Inc. Each side sticks to what it does the best and lets the other side do it. We just heard a discussion here. Well, it's really great to have a platform of a, one company that's doing all the hard structural parts and then the locals guys are doing this local stuff. So the Inc. side makes a platform for participation. The peers deliver a diversity of offering. I think they're bound together in a little yin-yang, very complementary and symbiotic. You have to leave enough on the table for the other side to participate, swimming in the sea of excess capacity. If you look at excess capacity, I love it because it's so resource and cost efficient. How do I define this? It's something that already exists, it's already been paid for, but there's more value there. So if you find it, how do you harness it? Number one, you can slice it. So if you think of Zipcar, we took this big asset and we let people just buy what they wanted. Or two, you can aggregate it. Airbnb took a million little tiny things, aggregated it into this one big way of, um, with a common insurance and common ways to, of interacting. And third, the most incredible is that you can open up that asset and say, hey guys, what good ideas do you have on it? And that's what the whole open data movement has been. Here's data that we collected one time. What are new values that you can extract out of this? Um, this is a McKinsey report. The US government was the first one to open up their data sets. 40 countries have followed, opening up a million data sets, and McKinsey says, you know what, there's $3 trillion worth of value there. So just imagine the value that can be extracted, leveraging excess capacity, harnessing excess capacity on these platforms for participation. What does the platform bring? What does the big side do? It, it, organizes, it organizes all the small parts, it makes the complex very simple, and it gives the power of the corporation, the power of the large, it hands that to the individual. And these things can scale because they're platforms. Platforms can give you that economies of scale. So out here in Silicon Valley, one of the people that would maybe most be associated with platform thinking would be Ev Williams, who founded Blogger and then went on to co-found Twitter and most recently Medium. So a, a bunch of startups that people have seen grow into places where people of all different persuasions are coming together to share ideas, including ideas about sustainability. Um, so Joel, you actually spoke with Ev. Yeah, I interviewed him on stage and it was, there were a couple interesting things. One was, I did not know this, that um, he founded Medium, which is this long form writing uh, platform, uh, primarily to, uh, the, to address climate change because he saw, you know, and again, ironically, the guy who invented the 140 word, 140 character tweet, uh, you know, was, was turning to long form writing. But he saw that, that there was so much disinformation out there, not just on Twitter, of course, but uh, on the web in general, that he wanted a place where thoughtful people could have thoughtful conversations in a, in a sort of curated kind of way. And, you know, for example, you know, corporations could, you know, respond to criticism in a thoughtful, longish way and not sort of getting into the, you know, often name-calling kinds of things that if you read the comments on, I don't know, the New York Times article or any New York Times article or many other papers where these snarky, you know, back and forth. And so, that's what Medium was all about, and, and so he really did that to try and have a more sensible, fact-based conversation about climate change. 
That's right. And he also uh, has founded a venture firm up in San Francisco that has an interesting mission. Um, it's actually evolved over the years, but now more and more they're looking at companies that are playing in big systems, whereas he said there is a huge potential for profitability. It's not a double bottom line play, but they're looking for big ideas that get to some of these really daunting challenges involving climate. Yeah, he, he calls them world positive uh, companies. And uh, that's his, I uh, guess, term of art. And he's brought together a really interesting group of, of people from both uh, investing, but also sustainability, like uh, James Joaquin, uh, who was sort of one of the early big dot-com plays or, uh, around, called Ophoto, and Andrew Beebe, who comes from Idea Lab and has done a lot in, in the solar world, and uh, Vishal Vasith, who uh, worked, has worked with Steve Case in, in Revolution, uh, sort of uh, incubator and, and uh, really innovative thinkers. And they're trying, and it's, what's really interesting was, was that a lot of their investing uh, interests around these world positive ideas are very much aligned with, with what Verge is all about, around, these, uh, around how these technologies come together to uh, create much bigger plays. So uh, yeah, I talked with them, and, and here's what he had to say about obvious ventures. So we, we look at a, a nexus of things that are roughly in three categories. Although we started out, I started out talking to James, like how do we, how do I invest more in climate and sustainability companies? Because I care a lot about that and it's a huge opportunity and it seems like there's a tipping point where there's a lot of, lot of awesome things, which is really confirmed when you, when you are here for a day and see all these uh, entrepreneurs and ideas. It's really inspiring, but at the time, I said, how, how can we do that? And we started working on this thesis. And it was a bit of a counter thesis because this is, you know, it's a boom time in Silicon Valley and information technology investments, but not very few people are focused on this stuff. And so we thought, we're going to find this stuff and we're going to find um, the unobvious stuff and um, invest in it. And then we, as we started working on that thesis, we decided to broaden it because it's not like, if, if our goal is impact, then it, there's not one area that defines even sus sustainability, obviously. And so we, we ended up with um, three areas of focus. One we call sustainable systems, which is more clearly um, energy-related things, climate and, and other resources. Um, one is health and wellness. <clears throat> and as it's increasingly clear, the connection between uh, what we consume and our personal health um, and climate, and all these things are interrelated, so that's, a, that's been an area we've invested in, and we think there's a ton of potential in. And then, um, lastly, is what we call people power, which is really about, it's generally more internet-focused things, but it's things that we think have a, a real chance of empowering a certain, certain group of people to um, create change for themselves or others, or closing a gap between what's possible by big companies or small companies or, or um, you know, individuals and, and the institutions. Well, that's just a taste. We could offer so much more in terms of the big thinkers and the really deep dive thinkers that we had at Verge. In fact, we'll be offering up uh, more pieces of that in the coming weeks on 350.
follows a live Verge performance by the very talented Cello Joe. The song is called Dubstep Spaceship. Very creative. And you can download more of his work on iTunes. But now we're going to pivot to the segment that we like to call What's Going On at Green Biz. And I know you guys have already heard a lot about what's been going on at Green Biz this week since we've all been on site in San Jose for Verge 2015. But with that in mind, we wanted to give you a sneak peek at what's to come. So for that, joining me now is Green Biz CEO Eric Farreau. How's it going? Great, great. It's been an awesome week. Yeah. How does it feel to have another Verge under your belt? It feels great. I think the the thing that's really cool is that five years ago when we started talking about this convergence, um, it was a very small group of people that really understood what we were talking about, and you just watched it here come to life. And you know, a great metaphor for that is thinking about just the interconnect in the foyer outside the ballrooms. You had SunPower, which who launched Helix here this week, right next to GM with uh, you know a Chevy Volt cut in half, so you could see what that looked like. That was very cool. Right next to Future City Labs, which had some really cool data visualization tools for cities. Um, next to Spray, which was a microgrid controller who was controlling the microgrid we built this week. So that was just a perfect way to think about this convergence coming together. Totally. And on the content side, what were some of the highlights for you? You did end with a pretty crazy panel on the Hyperloop, the space crazy space tube project. Yeah, I, I don't... That The fact that we could have an intelligent... We could have a real conversation about the idea of building that is, an, is a sign of how quickly the technologies are really moving. And the fact that you have a company that wasn't on stage today, but it has $8 million in funding to actually make that real is really phenomenal. Um, and, if, and if it works, the thing that was really interesting to me is if it works, it solves a lot of the transportation problems. And this week, I think that you saw that a lot. You saw a lot of companies, big and small, coming and talking about how do we solve congestion? How do we deal with getting people in, around in a more efficient way? So I guess highlights, top highlights for me, the, um, and I have to give a shout out to my partner, Joel, who was really on fire this week in interviewing people. Um, so the Tom Steyer Van Jones conversation was, was off the charts. And, you know, when you're here at an event, you're, you're dealing with really heady topics and you're looking at how you move the needle around climate in this country. That is a really difficult conversation. And, and the two of them just brought that to life in a way that was just understandable and emotional. And that's the thing, that emotional resonance. And then, um, but really my favorite one was uh, Joel in conversation with Steve Jurvetson. Um, he is a personal hero in this space to me in terms of, he's one of the few VCs that one is grounded and nice, humble, and he's the one that shouldn't be humble. He's, his investments, <laughs> he, you know, he saw the web as a platform in 94 when nobody understood that invested in Hotmail. He invested in Tesla before anybody would invest in Tesla because he saw the opportunity there. And he, he just has a long-term perspective. And so it was great to hear. And then hear the, you know, the deep learning, talking about how machines need to be smarter than us to solve the problems we're trying to solve. You know, I, I actually feel like he is a robot from the future. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> um, but so that sounds like it's going to be pretty hard to top. Is that daunting? What's next for Verge? Uh, that, that is always the best problem to have in the event business. Um, the good news is that we're going to Hawaii. So we can just show up in Hawaii and it's going to be good. Um, oh, no. That sounds terrible. Yeah. So we're partnering with the state to uh, run Virgin Hawaii June 21st to 23rd. Um, and we had a bunch of the folks from the state here this week uh, representing why Hawaii. You know, and Hawaii really is going to be the test bed to prove make Grid 2.0 work. 
yeah, you know, there's so many reasons. It's a closed system there. The scale is right. And there's just so many companies that are setting up shop. The other big partner is the Energy Accelerator, who have just grown exponentially. They started out as a DOE-funded um, accelerator, and they're national, so they work with companies around um, the country. But what they do uniquely is they bring them to Hawaii to set up shop there, and they'll help. They'll get. They'll hook them up directly with HECO or the Navy. Now they're funded by the Navy, so it's a really it's a really exciting time, and I think Hawaii is going to be. In a great place for us to grow Verge and meet people that are using that test bed and that place to create Grid 2.0. Yeah, I actually met a couple of the entrepreneurs from Accelerator at the cocktail party last night working on some really interesting stuff. Um, so that's Verge Hawaii. What can you tell us about Verge 2016? So again, in the good news category for us is that we've already outgrown the um, Fairmont here. We outgrew the Palace last year. Um, and one of the unique things about Verge is that we have to have a, a hotel or a facility that has access to outside, seamless out access, so we can build the microgrid. Mm-hmm. And the microgrid was way bigger this year, you know, having solar, having wind, having the gasifier, having a PG&E truck acting as battery storage. Um, next year, the, we're moving to Santa Clara at the Santa Clara Convention Center, which is right across from the new Levi's um, 49er Stadium. And it's a great facility because it's all in one floor, and it's this beautiful ballroom. There's a whole glass wall that goes right out into this parking lot that we control. So we can get crazy next year. <laughs> and I mean, my what I mean by crazy is we also have that huge parking lot which will be empty. So I would like to have a really hairy racetrack we make for autonomous vehicles to race in, so that you can experience what that would be like. I'd like to work with Google to get the Makani kite that we could fly because we have enough space to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of things we can do to just continue to grow and expand Verge. Sounds like it's going to be a fun event to plan. But thank you very much, Eric Faro, Green Biz CEO, for being with us. Thanks, Lauren. It's been a great week. Compelling. Diverse. Exciting. Synergy. Collaborative. Dynamic. Cutting edge. Inspiring. Inspiring. Thought-provoking. Collaboration. Diverse. Motivating. Collaboration. That was a montage put together by our reporter and technical director, Soraya Melconi, and uh, just went out in the halls of Verge here at the Fairmont Hotel in San Jose and asked people to offer up a word of what they thought about Verge. Uh, seemed to be some consistency around that, didn't it? Yeah, collaboration and partnerships, enthusiasm, all good stuff. So on day one of the main stage at Verge, we opened with a not-so-conventional exercise. We had a speaker who came in and actually asked all the participants to grab a colored piece of paper, stick them behind their backs, and then tear out the shape of an elephant. Yeah, it was uh, Chris Lupkeman, who's the chief uh, futurist at, at Arup, which is a big global uh, uh, engineering firm, and uh, he's been uh, a Verge speaker in the past, and loves. He's great at coming in and engaging, you know, a thousand people in the room to, uh, you know, all do something at once, which is no mean feat. Uh, but yeah, what, what was the elephant about? Yeah, it was. I totally didn't know where we were going for a minute. It was like a really fun way to start the day, and there were some crazy shapes coming out. People trying to blindly rip apart a piece of paper. But the end game was to stick these elephants on a window so they're right in your face for the next three days and talk about what the elephant in the room is. What's the issue that we're not talking about that we should be talking about in sustainability? Yeah, and there were a number of those, but one of the ones that was a recurring theme uh, by virtue of some of the speakers that we brought in 
was equity. Uh, how do we make sure um, that all this great technology and all, all this great, these, these great new things and this convergence that we're talking about uh, offers what, what Van Jones, uh, through an organization he founded, calls green for all. And uh, in fact, we talked with Van Jones, and we had featured him, I think, in, uh, last week or the week before on 350. Uh, but we had him on stage with uh, Tom Steyer, Tom, uh, the you know billionaire hedge fund uh, guy who has uh, become one of the great progressive uh, voices and funders. He's been known as the Koch brothers of the left. Uh, but he's in, he's incredibly thoughtful about you know, how we make sure that the the, the, the clean tech revolution, the green revolution, that all of these things um, not only uh, create opportunities for all, uh, or, or the create opportunities for all, but not out of just the sense of do-gooding, that this is actually a big business opportunity. That, that if we don't do this well, if we don't include everyone, if this is just for uh, well-to-do uh, elite people uh, and not for everyone, then we're, we're not only missing out on opportunity, but we're actually undermining the potential of these technologies to, to create resilience, sustainability, uh, thwart climate change, and everything else. Right, and I don't think I'm going to say it better than Van Jones, so let's cut right to a clip with Tom Steyer and Van talking equity and sustainability. The only way to talk about energy, environment, and climate is about local human issues. So if you're not talking about job creation, if you're not talking about relative costs, if you're not talking about health impacts, then you're not speaking to the people of California. It's now inarguable what Tom is saying. Before, we had a fear. Our fear was that the green economy would start moving in a particular direction, that it would be a kind of an eco-elite that would benefit, and then we would have a backlash coalition of polluters and poor people saying, no, you guys don't get all the solar panels and the solar brakes and the hybrid cars and the organic food, and we get asthma cancer clusters in the bill, and that we would be unable to overcome this backlash alliance between polluters and poor people. That backlash alliance now exists, and where it exists, unless you're doing it the way Tom says, it wins. How can we have climate rules that give more work, more wealth, and better health to everyone? They designed, in California, a cap-and-trade system that takes a quarter out of every dollar and takes it from polluters and invests it in poor communities. What does that mean? Practically, it means bus passes for people who need them, more mass transit. Practically, it means reduced solar panels, some free solar panels. Practically, it means uh, 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 urban forestry, organic. But politically, it means an unbeatable coalition. You cannot now roll back climate policy in California because too many people were at the table designing it and too many people benefit. One of the sort of elephant in the room moments of that conversation was uh, uh, Van had been talking, as he often does, about you know the sort of 
division between rich folks and poor folks in terms of access to solar energy and other kinds of things, but at the same time talking about how we all needed to you know, be inclusive here. And I kind of heard that rich folks, poor folks thing is uh, kind of divisive, and I, I called them on it. Where do rich folks live in general? In the hills. Where do poor folk live in general? In the flatlands. Where it's hot. <laughs> where the sun is beaming down. <laughs> now, where do the solar panels go up? On rich folks' homes. In the shady hills. They're not going up in the flatlands where you have a lot of poor folks. You have poor folks with, with black tar roofs. The roofs make the house hot. They got to crank up the AC. That mess makes the environment worse. If you were just rational, you'd say every one of those poor folks' houses could be a little mini power plant. Uh, but you'd have to be able to collaborate to figure out the financing and other things. I think you want, while solar panels are now half as cheap as they were half an hour ago, you might want to figure out a way to spread them out. Sam talks a lot about rich people and poor people, and I know you do that for effect. Um, but I want to ask you, Tom, and then I'm going to hear from you, Van. To me, that doesn't necessarily feel like coalition building. That feels a little divisive. How do you think about that? Is that about that, you know, the, the rich and poor conversation in talking about something that is about, social, about equity and about creating a bigger tent. So if you look at what's happened to incomes since 1990 in the United States, really even you go back to somewhere in the 70s, traditionally American productivity and American wages were like that. Wherever productivity went, wages went. And it was very straightforwardly connected, very directly connected, and pretty darn effective. So you could say, that in America, a rising tide lifted all boats. Starting somewhere in the 70s, that's, they were disconnected, completely disconnected. So as productivity continued to rise, wages were unaffected. If you look since 1990, wages for most Americans have gone down. That's 25 years of dropping real wages. If you look since 2008, since the recession, the, the numbers are crazy. The, you know, I've seen numbers where the top 1% got over 100% of the wage gains. So when you think about talking about this, I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat it. There's just, it's not divisive, it's the truth. So when we think about ourselves as a society, I don't think there's anybody who, doesn't think, who thinks that's okay. I mean, in a democracy, that doesn't really work. So I think it's really important as a society I don't think anyone set out to make this happen. But as a society, I think it's really important that we address this and we use, in, in, when we think about things, we understand that the people who are not benefiting from the, the gains that we're making, from the technologies we're creating, from the growth that we're having, are full members of society. And I think, you guys, one of the things that I've done, I went down to the Central Valley to spend a day with some people who are picking tomatoes, and I promise you they are working their ass off. Yeah. And I promise you that those are people who are contributing to society in a way that's a little shocking to see. Mm. And they're having, and, and the deal they're getting back from society is not one that anyone in this room is really actively seeking. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think it's divisive. I think the fact of the matter is, 
you know, it really speaks to who we are as Americans for me. And then there's Stephen Ritz. Now, this is the third time we've had Stephen uh, at one of our uh, Green Biz or Verge events. He's a teacher in the South Bronx who uh, just on his own created uh, and discovered that there was this real magical power uh, working with what really is uh, some of the poorest, most disadvantaged uh, children in the nation uh, of teaching them about growing plants and specifically growing their own food. And, and, you know, as he calls it, planting seeds and harvesting hope. Um, Stephen is kind of manic. He actually, his presentation is just, kinda, it's really sort of audacious. And then he went through, I, I don't know if you appreciate this, Lauren, uh, in, ten, in his 10-minute presentation, he went through 200 slides. I, it seemed like a lot, but seriously, yeah. that was how many? We actually counted them. And, and um, it's this very fast-paced, uh, but eloquent and moving uh, presentation about the work he's doing with kids and what the opportunity is. And uh, again, it, it both at our events and other events where I'd seen him speak, he's never not got a standing ovation. He, uh, he just delivers. Um, here for yourself. So here we are at Verb trying to grow something greater where technology and sustainability can come together for a greater global good. And I urge all of you daily to make Epic happen. And that's why I'm here to share with you my latest and greatest new idea. We're going to take an abandoned library and turn it into a net positive food factory from impossible to I'm possible. Literally, we're going to grow 100 bags of groceries a week, 52 weeks a year, in a state-of-the-art net positive facility using technology just like the stuff that's featured from you guys and right next door. I'm going to align it to Common Core. We're going to call it the Green Line to Success, and I'm going to have the first cohort of children from the South Bronx to ever attend the Bronx High School of Science because zip code and skin color should not determine outcome in life. Options should. Thank you. Since we've started, behavioral out of class time and behavioral incidents have been reduced by 50%. Teacher time, we've moved our school report card from developing to proficient in five of the most critical areas. This is a whole new recipe for success that my kids and I are creating. And we believe it's a model that can be replicated all across the country, if only the slides would work faster. So build function, add value, and create new systems. The future, technology's not gonna save the world, people. You and I are, people can, and that's what this is about. In abandoned buildings, I'm working with a genius, a guy named Farmer Dave from Uriah's Urban Farm, and using products and vision just like this. These are my kids and these are the seeds. Working with technology that many of you are involved with. Growing food, look at what we're doing. So it's selection, it's you know, sourcing, delivery, demand, zero waste using innovation and technology to connect people to healthy, fresh food. Absolutely remarkable. In a time and an age where people are so disconnected from their food, we are connecting people to their food in a way that you've never imagined. And for the first time in your life, you can now connect with your farmer once again, either in person with a delivery or right via this. How cool is that? We are recreating hyper-connected, hyper-local economies in ways we've never imagined. So, how we walk with the wounded speaks louder than how we sit with the great. And that's what my work is about. And that's why across rooftops across the South Bronx, I am growing food. And this is not Photoshop. This is 24 days, 44 plants a tower. This is a living product, living kids, happy, healthy children. So, what do we do? We build function. Van said it perfectly yesterday. 
Communities like mine have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And now that you know more, I expect you to care more. Hell, we're vergs. We don't accept life as it is or how it could be. We demand life as it should be. And I urge all of you in this room today not to clap for me, but to extend hands to your competitors in the room to help us end poverty and hunger in this lifetime. Together, we can do this. I grow vegetables, ladies and gentlemen, but my vegetables grow children. They grow communities. And I ask you, what are you growing? Where is your South Bronx? Where is your farm? How can you grow something greater? That's the landscape I want to paint. And I urge you all to do the same. No matter what you do, make epic happen. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Steve Ritz from Green Bronx Machine. Si se puede, God bless you. And together, let's change the world. Yeah, so that was a little taste of Stephen Ritz. He's the executive director of Green Bronx Machine. Um, I really encourage you to check it out, greenbronxmachine.org. And, you know, if you can, if your, your company has a philanthropy program, uh, support him. He's doing God's work, and, and, and we love He's kind of become our cause at Green Biz. We're really trying to help him get the funding he, he needs and deserves to continue to do this great work in South Bronx. Let's shift gears now to talk about what's happening in the week ahead. Joining me now is our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. Thank you for joining us, Elsa. Hey, Lauren. Thanks. So what do we have going on? Obviously, this week has been all-out verge craziness, but what have we got to look forward to? Well, next week, we're going to continue the conversations we're having here at Verge. So, Lauren, you are working on a piece already about the Hyperloop. That's the series of tubes, speed of sound transportation system first dreamed up by Tesla CEO Elon Musk that would zip you from Washington, D.C. to New York City in half an hour. Um, Elon Musk, by the way, is not officially trying to build a Hyperloop system, <laughs> as I just read on the SpaceX website. But Lauren will explain who is. Um, also, senior writer Heather Clancy will dive deeper into machine learning, which legendary venture capitalist Steve Jurvetson touched on both on stage at Verge. Um, he was talking about a brain in a box. And um, he's also in a recent Q&A by Joel that you can read on our site. Outside of Verge, our Shift Happens column says that you should engage external stakeholders on environmental, social, and governance issues, that is, on your ESG goals. And that's not just because reporting frameworks value stakeholder engagement. Jennifer Andrus and Mike Wallace will explain why with examples from Staples and ConAgra. We'll also have a Bard MBA interview with PepsiCo's futurist, Menage Fenelon. He has a really cool title, Director of Foresight and Innovation. That sounds like a fun job. Last but not least, Lauren and GreenBiz reporter Soraya Melkonian are working on a renewable energy buying guide. So if your company is getting started with solar or wind, this is meant to be a reference to spell out what you'll need to know about PPAs, virtual PPAs, RECs, and beyond. That's it for now. Thanks, Elsa. Good stuff. I guess we'll be busy next week after Verge. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, we've also got a couple of other events on the docket. 
We've got a webcast coming up November 3rd that will be looking at green infrastructure, specifically new technology for sustainable city designs, which has been a big topic this week as well. Uh, and then on November 10th, we'll be getting big into climate action and looking at why tackling climate change is good for business. Obviously, we'll be looking at that through the lens of COP21, uh, which you can read much more about on greenbiz.com by going to the top of the homepage and clicking the COP21 tab. And we will now throw it back to Joel. Well, that's 350 for this week, uh, the Verge edition. Uh, you can find links to the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned uh, in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. As always, I want to thank our technical director, Soraya Melkonian. We always want to hear your comments, so send them to us. Uh, just feedback, uh, questions, ideas, uh, and of course, compliments if you can. Uh, just send it to 350 at greenbiz.com. And as always, for the latest news, insights, and resources on sustainable business, visit GreenBiz and subscribe to our daily newsletter, Green Buzz. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.